9-2 in the Church Bible. Page uh, 1192. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, if you're using your own Bible, and we uh, commence our reading uh, at verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, page 1192. Paul is writing now to Timothy. That's why, uh, uh, and Timothy is a pastor in the church in Ephesus. And though this letter is addressed to Timothy the pastor, uh, Paul is ultimately writing to the church in Ephesus. And so he gives Timothy instruction now about the two offices of leadership that are permanent and enduring in the church until the Christ comes again. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer, elder, must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And now we come to the second office. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest game. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same manner, their wives or the women are to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions, so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up 
in glory. Amen. <coughs> I've asked the boys and girls uh, to come uh, to the front, please study in the office and the work of deacon. Uh, and we have seen already that every believer is a deacon with a small d. And last time we thought about the distinctive function, what is the particular role of the deacon within the church. And we saw that it is a role of service. Service of the needy within the church by caring for them. A service towards the congregation by managing its finances, its property and other shared resources. And then service to the elders by undertaking any task and taking from them any burden that would divert the elders from their calling and their work, which is that of prayer, ministry of the word, pastoral care, and leadership of the people of God. And this morning, in our final study, we come now to think about the kind of men that are to be elected to the office and the work of deacon. What qualities must they have? Uh, Thirty years ago, when I was a student at Jordanstown, uh, on a Thursday evening, you bought the Belfast Telegraph if you were in your final year. Because on the Thursday evening, there were uh, the job adverts. I imagine that nowadays, the computer uh, is as popular a place for trying to locate a job uh, as the newspaper. In any case, if you're going to look for a job, if you're looking for a job, and you're scanning adverts, you'll find in those adverts a job description, some indication of the hours of work. That doesn't come with the office of deacon, by the way, or the office of elder. Um, and you'll find uh, sometimes the level of pay. And the requirements that you must meet if you need to, if you wish to apply for the position. And this morning we are coming in many respects to God's advertisement in Scripture for the office of deacon. He's saying, Here are the men I am looking for, here are the men that you, the church, are to be looking for. And here are the requirements that they are to have. So we want to turn then this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, page 1192 in the church Bible. And here in verses 8 to 13, having already set out in verses 1 to 7 the requirements for the elder, Paul now sets out the qualities that a deacon must possess. And you will have noticed already from the reading of the scriptures this morning that there is to some degree an overlap uh, in the kind of qualities. Uh, and that is not uh, surprising. But we want to focus uh, particularly on verses 8 to 13 where Paul, uh, under Christ the head of the church, 
the saviour of his people now sets out the qualities that a deacon must possess. And you will have noticed that the NIV translates uh, again and again in these verses uh, and includes the verb must. Uh, It actually only occurs once, which is in verse 8, but it is there in verse 8 with a view to it being uh, carried throughout the whole section. So it's not that these are desirable. Sometimes when you're looking for a job and you're looking down the adverts, it'll say, for example, with regard to a school teacher, musical ability, desirable. Uh, or sporting ability, desirable. It's not essential, but it would be helpful. Well, these qualities, it's not that they would be helpful to men entering this office They are essential. That's the difference. And as opposed to going through these one by one this morning, I want to group them together because I think there are are big principles that Christ is giving to his church here through the Apostle. And there are four things that we want to note about men uh, elected as deacons. They must be known for their Christ-honoring character. They must be known for their Christ-honoring character. And we're looking now particularly at verse 8, where Paul uses uh, four uh, words um, to, uh, which have to do with character. Men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. In the language in which the New Testament was written, uh, three of the words have the equivalent of our English word not before them. Not double-tongued is the literal translation for sincere. Not given to much wine. Not Greedy. And those emphasize negative qualities, things that must not be there. Uh, and then there is one positive quality, uh, this one worthy of respect or above reproach. So Paul is saying we've got to assess a man's character both negatively and positively. And the church is to do that before it elects any man to the office of deacon. So what does Paul expect the church to ask of the men in her midst? Well, first of all, is this man worthy of respect? And the word literally means dignified or serious. And that doesn't mean, does he run, does he go around the place looking glum and never with a smile. This word means, is he an honest man, upright, moral? Does he take life seriously? Does he take his faith seriously? Is he earnest about his church membership? If a man does not command your respect, now as a member of the church in these ways... 
he will not gain your respect by being elected a deacon. And indeed, he will not possess the confidence of the congregation if he were elected as a deacon. The men must be worthy of respect, honest, upright men. Then we're to ask, secondly, is this man sincere? And I've already alluded to the fact that that's not a good translation in the NIV. Literally, it is not double-tongued. Paul's has in mind a man's speech. And uh, there's a phrase that we sometimes hear um, about a man or about a woman. They speak out of both sides of their mouth. And the idea there is that they say one thing to one person and they say something different to another person. That's what it means to be double-tongued. It means uh, also that a man who does that deceives. And if a man is double-tongued and therefore thereby deceiving, then he is not suitable for the office of deacon. Deacon. His forked tongue will breed mistrust. It will cause dissension within the church. As some members hear him say one thing and other members hear him say another thing. And the man with a forked tongue will set members against each other. Ultimately, instead of helping them to work together um, faithfully. So where they respect, not double-tongued, then with another negative, and we're to ask, uh, and, uh, and, sorry, with another negative, uh, not indulge in much wine. So we're to ask, does this man indulge in alcohol? Now, Scripture does not teach that it is wrong to drink wine. Scripture demands moderation. If you are going to drink wine. There's a good case that can be made for the Christian not uh, drinking alcohol. Uh, I personally believe that there are spirits that the Christian should never touch. Never touch. The uh, Bible knows nothing of the spirit um, type of alcohol that is around today. There was wine and that was it. Uh, in, and that is what scripture, it seems to me, allows a person to drink, a Christian to drink. Um, but it says again and again that drunkenness is a sin. Uh, and when a person is drunk, they no longer are able to exercise self-control. And you see, that is why uh, it is always wrong for the Christian if they do believe that they, uh, if they want to, uh, to have alcohol, if they become drunk, then they lose self-control. And of course, the elder and the deacon, they never know when they're going to be called upon to give service in the church. So they have got to be particularly careful about this whole issue. And a man who's given to much wine, it will lead often to other sins. 
um, and other problems. Uh, poor stewardship um, can lead to um, bad communication, wrong communication, loose communication, many, many other things. Um, immorality often goes along with um, too much alcohol. And Ephesians, Paul writes to the church, this same congregation, this same congregation, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Obviously, there's a problem in alcohol, or in Ephesus, among some of the members, with their use of wine. And uh, Paul has warned them against that earlier. And now he says, you come to elect your deacons, they must not indulge in wine. Okay, let's look then at the last one of these Christ-honouring traits of character. Not greedy for material things. Not greedy for material things. Is this man driven by the things around him? The things that can be touched and tasted and handled. The things of this life. Is he driven by a desire to get on and do well in life? Is he um, possessed by his money and material things? Does his lifestyle suggest extravagance? Does he talk more about material things and give more time to material things than his walk with Christ? Is this man generous? Or is he stingy? A man greedy for material things in church office will be more concerned about his own affairs than the needs of the members and the well-being of the church. And indeed, a man greedy for material things may want to do church business in unquestionable, or sorry, in questionable ways. I heard recently of a situation uh, where a church discovered that a piece of property they had, that somebody else had been paying the rent for that for a period of time, wrongly. And the attitude of at least one person, perhaps more, was, shh, say nothing about it. See, it wasn't going to face up to the fact that if somebody else had been paying um, the, um, the um, sorry, it was the rates, the rates, sorry, I meant to say, I, say, I think I said rent. Uh, if somebody else had been paying the rates because this, another part of the property had been sold and the rates were all included together, well, then that's not a Christ-honoring thing for the church to do. And it's a material, and uh, it's a material motivation that creates the desire to keep that sort of thing quiet instead of going back and sorting it out. So then, worthy of respect. Not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not greedy for material things. That's their Christ-honoring character. Now, that doesn't just apply to the deacon, does it? Is there anything here that Paul writes that should not apply to you and me and all of us as Christians. 
whether we hold office in the church or not, whether we are male or female, am I a Christian, are you a Christian who in your workplace and in your family and in your neighbourhood is known as one who follows Christ and you're worthy of respect, you're honest, you're upright. You're one who is not double-tongued. You're one who does not indulge in much wine. You're one who is not greedy for material things. These things, while they're um, to be found in the deacon, they must be found in the deacon. Elect, they're to be found in all of us. Because these are the marks of Jesus, our Saviour. He was a man worthy of respect. He was a man who was not double-tongued. He was a man who didn't even have a place to lay his head, we're told, during his ministry. He is a man who was buried in the tomb of another. He is a man who did not indulge in much wine. Christ honouring character. The servant, and we're all servants, have got to become like the master. The Christian has got to become like the saviour. Let's notice then, secondly, their Christ honouring confession. Their Christ honouring confession. Verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a pure conscience. Now Paul expects the church at Ephesus to assess the faith of the male members in the congregation before they elect them to the office of deacon. And he's talking now not just about does this man profess faith. That's not even an issue in Paul's mind. And that's not even an issue in our minds here. He's talking now about a man's beliefs. He's talking about his commitment to the doctrines and the practices that make up the Christian faith. It's not enough to use a phrase uh, that is sometimes used, that a man is on the right side of John 3, verse 16. In other words, whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life. It's not enough that a man can say, I have through Christ everlasting life. Paul is looking for more here than a man who understands the basic truths of salvation, repentance and faith. He's saying, does this man know more of the faith? Does this man dig deeper in the faith than simply being able to say, I've been saved by Jesus Christ, I am his disciple. Now why does Paul emphasize this? Well, those of you who are familiar with 1 Timothy and the church in Ephesus at this time, will know that there are men teaching false doctrine. 
in Ephesus, in this very congregation. And they're making some headway among the members of the church. Read chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this letter if you're not aware of that. And Paul is saying here to the church at Ephesus, any man who is imbibing the error that the false teachers are peddling, 